Would you take your Bible and turn to John 18? We'll be in John chapter 18. We'll begin in verse 1 here in a moment. One of the passages of scriptures that came to mind as uh, I was studying for this uh, was 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Uh, let me read that to you. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. For a Christian, it is not normal for us to be anxious and worrisome and nervous. It is normal for us to have a spirit not of fear, but a spirit of boldness. And that spirit of boldness is not just what happens on Sunday morning when we're at church, but it's every day, every step of the way, we are to operate not out of anxiety and fear, but out of boldness. And there's no greater example of living this way than Jesus himself, and we're going to see this found in this story in John chapter 18. If you're there, say amen. Beginning in verse 1, follow along as I read. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, let's stop for a moment there. Uh, You had, uh, after he said these things, what things are we talking about? Well, the previous two, three, four chapters is all Jesus talking to his disciples. It starts uh, in the upper room where they're having the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. They're there in the upper room in a house in Jerusalem proper. And he began to teach. And then they leave the house, and as they're walking through the city, he continues to teach. He continues to speak to them, and he ends his speech and his teaching with a prayer, praying for himself, praying for them, and praying for future followers of Christ. And after he finishes that prayer, it says that he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. Now, Jerusalem proper was on seven hills or seven mountains. You had the main part of Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Next to it was Mount Moriah, which is where the Temple Mount was. You also had the city of David, which was south and east of those other two mountains. Then you had on the eastern side of Mount Moriah, where the Temple Complex was, you had a valley called the Kidron Valley, and in the bottom of that was the Kidron Wadi. A wadi is a little river stream, a coulee, if you will, that is dry most of the year, but in the rainy season, it becomes just a a river flowing through there. And so they leave the city proper, they go out, they go down through the Kidron Valley, and on the other side of the Kidron Valley, from where they were in Jerusalem, was the Mount of Olives. It was known as the Mount of Olives because of the olive trees, the groves of olive trees that were, that were there. And it says here that there was a garden. He and his disciples went into it. And so scholars say that because they go into this place and later they come out of this place, that this was a defined property. It probably had a wall around it because what farmers would do is they would wall in their property. They would have their trees inside of it, and they also would have any of their tools and machinery that they needed. And so one of the things that you would need is an olive press, and an olive press in that day was called a Gethsemane. They are in the Garden of 
Gethsemane, which means the Garden of the Olive Press. So probably what's happening here is Jesus and his disciples, they know someone who has on the Mount of Olives, probably towards the base of it, he had a farm there that had an olive grove and also had an olive press. It was walled in a defined space. And we find from the other Gospels that that is where they were living and staying during this week of Passover. And so he basically is going home. Now, in the other Gospels, uh, it talks about his prayer once he gets there. Remember, the prayer of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and his sweats, he's sweating drops of blood. You remember those stories? And John doesn't talk about that. And you say, well, why doesn't John talk about that? That's kind of a big deal. We don't know exactly why, but we do know that the Gospel of John was the last book written. And he had access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he would have known what they had written about. And it may be, he only he's getting towards the end of it. He's only gotten a certain amount of pages left. And he just chose, hey, they've already dealt with that well. I'm not going to deal with that. He was going to focus on some different aspects of the story for the purposes that John had in writing his gospel. And so he doesn't focus on that, but notice what he focused on. Verse 2, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Because Jesus often met there with his disciples. If they were staying there, which the Bible says they were staying there overnight, and Judas wants to find where Jesus is at nighttime, that's where he's going to go. And we find in verse 3, So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, in Jerusalem in this day, there would have been two groups of military people. The first would have been the Romans. Uh, They had their primary fortress was on the uh, Sea of Galilee, excuse me, the Mediterranean Sea in Caesarea Maritime. That's where they would have been. But during the festivals, they would have brought soldiers into Jerusalem to kind of police the population because they'd get kind of crazy during those festivals. And so you had the Roman military. Then you had a police force that was run by the high priests and the temple complex, the Pharisees and Sadducees, etc. You have here groups of both militaries coming to get Jesus. Now, it says here that there are officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. That's referring to the temple police. And then it says, Judas took a company of soldiers. That's referring to the Roman military. Now, when you think about this story, because many of you have read this story before, when you think about this story, how many people do you envision being with Judas? I'll be honest with you. I thought maybe 15, 20 I mean, how many people do you really need? It's just one guy and a couple of fishermen. Like, what do you really need? So I'm thinking 15 to 20 folks. Is that kind of in y'all's mind? Maybe 50? I I don't know. There's a technical term here, and it's a Latin term referring to a size of a particular unit in the Roman military. You've heard of a legion, you've heard of the centurion, a commander with a hundred at his disposal. Uh, This is a very specific term, translated company, in my translation. And it refers to a unit that would have had over a thousand people in it. Many of them would have been cavalry. Many of them would have been support personnel. The largest number that they would have of foot soldiers, which we're dealing with here, would be about 600 foot soldiers. 
Now, in history, we have this word used to describe different sizes groups. The smallest group that this word is used in other places is 200 men. So, the bottom line, though, the commander of the thousand is here. We find that later in the text. And there, is eno- there are enough there that when John refers to the group, he's referring to the group as a whole. I don't think John was sitting there at nighttime going, I want to get this word right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I don't, that's not what was happening. But what it was is there were enough people that John could say the whole cohort was there. The whole company was there. We were not talking about tens. We are not talking about dozens. We are talking about literally hundreds of men coming to get Jesus. Those hundreds of men, it says, have some things with them. Uh, They have lanterns, and they have torches, and they have weapons. Think in your mind in the movies, when do you see a mob of men going out at nighttime in the dark with torches and lanterns and weapons? Who are they going after? Dracula. That's right. You always see it in, the, in, the, in those movies like Dracula, Frankenstein. All the people get together. They've got their pitchforks and they got their whatever and they got their light. That, that's what I'm imagining. And here they come and they're coming out ready for battle, ready for war, ready for whatever takes place, coming to arrest Jesus. Why such a show of force. Why so many men armed to come get Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth? Why do you think? Well, they had fresh in their memory what took place on Sunday with Jesus. Do you remember what took place on Sunday? Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people gathered around the streets of Jerusalem, laying their garments on the ground, waving palm branches, and singing Hosanna to none other than Jesus coming in on a donkey. Do you remember that? It would have seemed that the entire city was in support of Jesus, and now they are going to arrest him. You better believe they're bringing hundreds of men to go arrest Jesus. Now, what would happen... If someone knocks on your door and you open a door and there are 600 plus men armed to the teeth with torches and lanterns there to see you. I'm going to tell you what happened at my house. First of all, I would send Kim to the door. I, I probably would get a little nervous, wouldn't you? If that kind of group shows up, do you think you'd get nervous? A little bit. I mean, y'all get nervous when two men from First Baptist Lafayette show up at your door. (laughs) Much less 600 men with weapons ready to get after you. You'd be nervous. Do you know what you probably wouldn't be doing? You probably wouldn't be very bold, would you? You probably wouldn't be very clear in your speech. Uh, you probably say, well, uh, 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 what, 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 how can I, how? You, you wouldn't be very confident. In fact, you may look out the little peephole and go out the back door, right? Let's get out of here as quick as I possibly can. For most of us, that's what we would do. But what does Jesus do in the midst of that? What does Jesus do? Look in verse 4. 
Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, he went out. He approached them. He engaged them. And he said to them, who is it that you are seeking? This is not a man that was tucked tail and run. This was not a man who was nervous. This is not a man who was worried about it. This was not a man who was stammering or stuttering. This was a man who with boldness and confidence opened the door and said, Hey boys, what's happening? Who are you looking for? Now how was it that Jesus could respond to that type of pressure in a way that you and I probably would not respond? How could Jesus do that? Well, the text gives us an indication. Look back in it. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them. You see, Jesus knew what was about to happen already. How did Jesus know that? Well, Jesus had a skill set that you and I don't have. Do you know what his skill set was? He is God, okay? I feel like that's a helpful skill set, probably. And so he could have known that in his deity and his divinity. He could have known that with his foreknowledge. But there were some other things. Remember, he prophesied Judas was going to betray him, and now he sees Judas there. Oh, that's a clue. I know what's about to happen now. But do you remember when they were in Bethany and they were having a meal, and a lady came and anointed him with oil and, and wiped, wiped, cleaned it off with her hair? Do you remember, remember that happened? Do you remember what he said? Don't get upset with her. She is preparing me for my burial, my death. Uh, They're coming into Jerusalem and some Gentiles, some non-Jewish people want to come see Jesus and meet Jesus and believe in Jesus. And he goes, oh man, I was sent to the Jews. I wasn't sent to the Gentiles. Now that the Gentiles are starting to know about it, that, that tells me it's coming to an end. Then when he rides in the donkey and he came in on a triumphal entry, all of that was fulfilling prophecy. All of that was pointing to the fact that, hey, it's coming to the end right now. Jesus knew exactly what was happening, and because he was aware of what was happening, he could be bold in that situation. Which brings us to our first takeaway. Are you ready? Here it is. Awareness breeds boldness. Awareness breeds boldness. We've, uh, our family has come across a movie, an old movie recently. I'm sure you've seen it or you know of it. Uh, the movie called Jaws. We got any Jaws fans in the house? So you know when something's fin to go down in Jaws because of what? Ba-dum. 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 In fact, I think when I'm about to start making a hard-hitting point, we ought to start playing that in here. That would be... And the faster it gets, the closer the teeth are to the person, right? And so as that noise is happening, what is happening to the heart in your chest? And he goes faster and faster and louder and louder before long. You can hear your heart beating out of your mouth, okay? You know what I'm talking about. You're anxious. Is the shark going to eat the person? Is the shark going to swing by them? Is the shark going to drown them all? Is it going to kill them? What's going to happen? And we get anxious and, and, and we have all of this. But do you know who doesn't have any of that anxiety? Do you? The shark. <laughs> That was a great answer, but not the one I was looking for, all right? 
The person that does not have the anxiety is the director. Why? Because the director knows all the script. The director knows whether the shark's going to get them or not. The director knows what's going to happen next. Because of the director's awareness of the situation, he will never be in a position of anxiety and worry. He will always be in a position of boldness, confidence, knowing what's going on. There are things that happen in this world that if we rely solely upon our perspective, we will have anxiety, we will have suspense, we will have worry, we will not be able to be confident, we will not be able to be bold because we don't really understand what's going on. If only there was a way that we could understand the perspective of heaven in what's going on in our life. If only there was a way that he could tell us the perspective of heaven so that we could know and have that awareness and be bold in that situation. If only we could look at the things happening on CNN and Fox News and wherever else and and, and filter it through a certain worldview that is in line with what God believes and what God teaches. If only we knew where we could find that. So you have God's word that opens up the mind and heart of heaven to you. And when you're looking at a particular situation and you are anxious and worrisome because you're operating on this plane right here, you need to open up God's word because it will help you on this plane here. And you will be able to see what is happening in the world around you with the awareness of Christ and the awareness of heaven so that it will enable you to say, you know what, I know that this world is going somewhere in a handbasket, all right? I know that that is happening, but do you know what else I know? I know we, in, we win in the end. I know he's got a plan and a purpose and a promise, and I don't have to get sideways over this thing that seems like a crisis because I am aware of the reality that despite who is in the White House, Jesus is on the throne. That awareness breeds boldness. We'll keep reading. We see something else happen. He has asked them, who is it that you're seeking? And in verse 5, they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with him. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Some of you read that. You say, wait a minute, I can't believe that's in there. You've not read that before. You've not noticed it. You just read right by it. But, but let, me, let me go back. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Lazarus. He said, I'm he. And what did they do? They got out their uh, handcuffs. They slapped it on them. They said, you're coming with me. You're dirty, rotten, good for nothing. No, what'd they do? Hundreds of men at the same time went backwards and fell down on the ground before Jesus. Now, the liberal theologians that don't believe the Bible say that what happened was Jesus came out of the shadows and startled them. And they were standing so close to each other that the first one went, oh, and stepped back and stepped on this one's toe. And he went, oh, and stepped back and stepped on that one's toe. And then 600 men stepped on each other's toes and they all ended up on the ground. That's what they say happened. My friends, that's not what happened. Do you think Roman soldiers are going to be walking that close to each other where they can step on each other's toes? Do you think that they're going to show up with pitchforks and swords and spears? I don't, they probably didn't have pitchforks. Swords and spears and all this other weaponry. Do you think they showed up in the middle of the night with lanterns and torches? Do you think they showed up and were going to be surprised by somebody coming out of the shadows? No. Then why was it that they fell to the ground? When Jesus answered, 
the Greek text says that he said, not I am he, but ego emi, I am. He uses that phrase, I am, all throughout the book of John because I am, that word order, that word usage, it connects to the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh. And so when he said, I am, what he was doing was claiming deity. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus saying something? I don't know. Let me ask you. The Bible says that God said, let there be light. And there was, he created everything with a spoken word. If he can create everything with a spoken word, don't you think he can knock down a couple hundred men with a spoken word? And so when he said, I am, he was informing them of who they were really dealing with. It wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth, although that was him. It was the very Son of God. And in that realization and in that moment, those men that were so strong and so tough and had the advantage ended up on the ground. Notice what Jesus does next. Verse 7. Then he asked them again, Who is it that you're seeking? And they said, Now I imagine they said this a little differently than they said it the first time, don't you? Jesus of Nazareth? Who are you looking for the first time? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Where is he? Now who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth? Voice crack, right? And he said, I'm he. I done told you. If you're looking for me, let these men go. Uh, notice that he informs them. He interrogates them. He starts asking them questions. Hey, hey, I'm asking questions here. What does that phrase mean? That means I'm in charge. And then he tells them what to do. Let these men go. Look, if hundreds of Roman soldiers show up, you don't tell them what to do. You do what they say. But in this situation, Jesus is telling them what to do. And guess what happens? They do what he says. Help me out, church. You got one Jesus and you got 600 soldiers. Who is in charge? Jesus was. Jesus was. Why? Because Jesus is the one that had all the authority. Are you ready for number two? Number two. Authority breeds boldness. Authority breeds boldness. I'll give you an example. Later today, uh, there will be a football game played in Las Vegas. And at that football game, there are going to be one of two people sitting in the seats. Uh, Number one, there are either going to be rich people sitting in those seats Or there will be people who have maxed out their credit card sitting in those seats, all right? They are thousands of dollars for each ticket. Even the nosebleed is like seven grand for a nosebleed seat. You really got to want to watch football to do that. And so they're going to be full of wealthy, influential people all over the stadium. But do you know who the most powerful people in the stadium are? It's people making minimum wage. Who is that? There's a group of people that get there early. And uh, they take a little jacket. And they'll put that jacket on. And it's like they put on Superman's cape. Because at the head of every aisle is an usher with one of these jackets on. And I don't care who you think you are. You ain't sitting in this spot if it ain't your seat. 
and they have the authority to tell all them rich uppity-ups where to go and what to do. And if they want to kick somebody out, guess what they can do? They can kick them out of there. Well, I spent $15,000 on this ticket. I don't care. You're out of here. Pull. Now, how is it that that person has authority over all of those people? How is it? Because they've got the jacket on that tells, I have the authority to do this. Listen, friend, when you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you put on the jacket of Jesus and you now have the authority of Almighty God in your life. You are filled and empowered with the Spirit of God. You have been given a task. He is personally with you. And when you walk around on this planet, you are under His protection, under His guidance, under His direction. And you have an authority from heaven so that regardless of the situation around you, you have the authority of God over that situation. You never, never, never have to cower before someone because you name the name of Christ. In every situation in which you name the name of Christ, you are in authority of that situation. Because you're with Him. You'd never have to bow. You never have to cower. You never have to run as long as you're operating within the will of God because you're operating with the authority of God. That doesn't mean you have to be mean about it, but it does mean you can walk with boldness in the authority of Jesus. Let me give you the last thing. Let's keep reading. In verse 8, he tells, let this, these men go. And this was to fulfill the words he had said. I've not lost one of these you've given me. And then Simon Peter does what Simon Peter does. He had a sword. Why in the world would you give that man a sword? I, I have some kids in my house. I'm not going to give some of them swords. Why would you give Simon a sword? He had one. And so he thought it was a good idea to draw that sword... With 800, 600, 200, however many, hundreds of men with swords in front of him, he had the idea to draw that sword. Maybe he saw Jesus being tough, and he said, I'm going to be tough too. Maybe he remembered that he said, I'll die for you, and he, this was a, a kamikaze suicide trip. I don't know. But he takes his sword out, and it says that he cuts off the right ear of a servant whose name was Malchus. Now, think about this. We don't know if Peter was left-handed or right-handed. We don't know, but odds are he's right-handed. If he is right-handed and you cut off that dude's right ear, what do you have to go through in order to get to that ear? The rest of his head to get to that ear. And I don't know, I'm not a military guy, I, I, but, but I think when they're telling you to aim at a bad guy, they don't tell you, hey, i tell you what's really going to get him. Aim at his ear. Just take that ear clean off. You do that, you'll get them good. I don't feel like that's what you aim at when, you, when you're shooting the bad guys. Uh, so here's what's happening. Maybe clumsily because he wasn't a soldier, he was a fisherman, I don't know. But he takes out a sword, maybe a dagger, and he is trying to take that man's head off. And he ends up cutting off his right ear. Now, in the other Gospels, it says that Jesus comes and picks the ear up off the ground and puts it back on his head and heals him. Man, that would have been a trip, wouldn't it have been? But here's Peter, and at the very basic level, he is saying, I don't want you to be arrested. I know what's going to happen. I don't want that to happen. I am willing to fight so that you can get away. And he jumps in there to do that. And notice Jesus says in another gospel, Peter, I could bring legions of angels to defend me if I wanted to. Well, why didn't you, Jesus? Look in verse 11. At that, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? 
What is the cup the Father had given him? It was his assignment to go to the cross. And he's saying, if I fight, then I'm not going to fulfill his purposes. If I fight, if I don't take a stand here, if I run, if I, if I chicken out, if I try to, to fight back in any way, then what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be denying the plan that God has for me. He was willing to accept God's plan. Which brings us to the third point, acceptance breeds boldness. Acceptance breeds boldness. They ended up arresting Jesus, but that was part of God's plan. And when Jesus was arrested, he wasn't worried, he wasn't anxious, he wasn't being wimpy, he was being strong because remember, he was in charge and yet he allowed himself to be arrested. Why? Because he was being obedient to the will of God. He had accepted God's will. If you look in Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the chapter of faith, and you look through it, all of these people, you say, well, they were superior people. No, they were not superior people. They were regular folks that God did, did amazing things through, but every single one of them had something in common. Do you know what it was? They accepted the plan of God for their life. They said yes to what God had. And when they said yes to what God had, do you know what God gave them? God gave them awareness, and he gave them authority, which enabled them to be bold. And the reason that Christians walk around in anxiety and worry today, it is not because they have tough things in their life. All, we all have tough things in our life, but not everybody responds to it with weakness. The reason is because there is some, some area in your life that has not been submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You have not accepted his plan for you. You have not accepted his desire for you. You have come across something, and he's convicted you of something, and you said, no, nope, I'm going to do my own thing. And because of that, you are operating not out of the boldness that comes from heaven, but out of the weakness that comes from your own heart. The reason that Jesus had this was because he had accepted what God had for him. The key here is to trust the Lord. When we do that, we'll get all we need to step with boldness. Some of you have not accepted what God has for you. Let me be very basic on this. There may be a sin issue in your life, and God has pointed that out and is asking you to confess that sin issue to him and to repent of that and to make it right. And you have hardened your heart and have refused to do so. Because you have refused to accept that conviction and respond to him, all of the boldness, the authority, the awareness, those things that he wants to give you, all of those have been sucked out of your life and you walk around as a spiritual wimp in anxiety and in worry and lacking all the boldness that you ought to have. You're living in a spirit of fear because you have refused to accept his conviction, to confess that and repent of that. I don't tell you what that is. You know exactly what it is. And because of that, it may be a specific call on your life. And that a big, maybe you're called to ministry. I don't know, but you're, you have a call on your life. But for whatever reason, you're not willing to pursue that. You're holding on to something. I like doing this. I like having this. I like this thing here. And you're unwilling to surrender and accept the cup that he has for you. My friends, because of that, it has sucked all of the awareness and the authority out of your life. And what it's done is given you a spirit of fear. And so you claim Jesus, that's great, but we've got to accept his cup each and every day. And when we do that, we will have a peace, the pressure will be lifted, the anxiety and the worry. It doesn't change the circumstances, it changes us and how we deal with those circumstances. And so the challenge for you today 
is whatever it is that God's calling you, whatever he's convicting you of, whatever he's doing in your life, the challenge for you is to accept that, to repent, confess, commit, whatever it is, to following him. Some of you are not going to face eternity with boldness. I'm not really fired up with the idea of dying, but I I do know this. I have confidence in what's going to happen to me when I do. I have a boldness of what's going to happen to me. And the reason is because I have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. Some of you, when you think about eternity, you don't want to think about it because when you do think about it, there's anxiety and there's worry and there's a lack of boldness and confidence with eternity. And that's because you have never surrendered and given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. So the invitation for you is today, accept the gift of Jesus and give your heart and life to him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. What is it that you need to accept today? What is it you need to repent of today? What's God saying to you today? Right where you sit in the quietness and attitude of your heart, will you lift that up to him? Confess that, repent of that, surrender to that, accept that. If you've never given your life to Christ today, the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you, praying in your heart right where you are, would call out to heaven, say, Lord, I am a sinner. I am separated from you. I need a Savior. I believe you're God's son, that you died for me, that you were raised on the third day, and I'm willing to give my life to you. I turn from my sin and I give my life to you. Will you save me? He promises he'll save you. If you've never accepted Jesus, will you do that right now and call on him to save you? Our Father in heaven, we surrender this time to you as we respond. And I pray that we would accept Jesus. We would accept the cup that you have for us. We would repent and confess and acknowledge and commit And I pray that we would be empowered with boldness to face the day. Lord, we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.